0: We're in Mark chapter one, and we're going to pick up in verse 21 and try to finish the chapter today. Um, context to this is, of course, Mark just started his book, so he immediately, immediately, then they went, then they did. So we're we're already up to them traveling to Capernaum because Mark just moves right to the. I think what Mark and Peter think is the good stuff, right? It's this. This is what Jesus did, and this is what the the juxtaposition. The gist of his ministry was all about this. So he's just called four disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and he said, Follow me, and then they follow him. And he immediately shows them to the synagogue. So they he he's like basically he's saying, Come to church with me. And so he he says, he brings them with the synagogue. They go into the synagogue. Jesus immediately starts to teach, steps right up to the podium and starts teaching the word. In the synagogue of Capernaum, is where this happens. Um, and you get a sense of like what, what Jesus is doing when he opens up the scroll is he's teaching from the Old Testament. We should know that. So a way a synagogue would work is they'd open the scroll and they'd start reading for it, and then they would give a sense of the meaning of what it says. So the kind of Bible study that was supposed to happen in synagogue, it looks a lot like what we do today in church. You open the Word, you read the passage, you make some sense of it. There's some conversation there. It really doesn't matter who's leading the talk through What matters is that you're getting the word and you're understanding it. So uh, in the middle of Bible study, verse 21 happens. And here's the weird thing. Like we've been going long enough as a Bible study. We've seen this kind of thing. You got people that come into Bible study and they're they're, they're not used to being there. They haven't been washed by the word yet. And they become a distraction or a disruption. And so Jesus has this happen. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue and he taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority, not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's not like praise. Like we should read that with a tone of like accusation, right? This isn't a good thing. Um, So right away in Mark and Peter, they get right into issues like unclean spirits. Uh, the idea that there is another spirit in a human being in addition to the one that God gave them. So there's an unclean spirit in this person. Some people try to read this passage as though it's just somebody who hasn't really been sanctified yet. But as we read in the coming verses, that's no, this is a demon getting cast out when this happens. So it's the same words that get used when they talk about someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit, is that this person is filled with an unclean spirit. And it's the same use of the words. When human beings exist, this is, I think for me, this is something I've struggled with for a long time. It's hard to understand this. And especially after you've been a believer for a long time, being a believer makes it so demons really can't reside. Um, So, and, and it's hard to come up with rules around that because we live in a culture right now that has an increase in spiritism and the occult, and we're seeing an increase in what's called demon possession. Medical doctors explain it away, sometimes for good reason. Sometimes there's actually a mental disorder there. But sometimes they're trying to explain to something that the Bible just assumes is true. And that is, there's a spiritual world. And you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, which guides your actions and tells you where to do, but with much more grace and peace and mercy. Or you can be filled with an unclean spirit, which basically tries to destroy you and the study of the word that goes on around you. And so we see this happening where this person... Let's also note... This is so common in the first century when Jesus shows up. Like I think we take for granted how little of this we have in our society, in part because of the influence of the church on our society for so long. In the first century, this is so common that these people are showing up to synagogue. Notice this is happening in synagogue during a morning teaching. So if Tom started to go nuts right now, we you know we'd have to deal with that at some level. Though you can you know Tom won't do that, I'm sure. I I hope, probably, maybe. Apparently, the typical synagogue service was nothing that demons had to run from. That says tons about what was going on in synagogues, that an evil, unclean spirit is perfectly okay hanging out and going there. The problem is when Jesus gets up and starts teaching the word of God. That's the issue. The issue isn't synagogue, it isn't the rabbis, it isn't the community around them. That's scary, Because it means that we need to be thinking about that in that the the demon world isn't somehow magically kept away from the church either. And so where it's allowed, they will come in and make these kinds of issues. And he says, let us alone. The the use of the plural there could either be the person that's there and the unclean spirit, or later on we're going to see that there's multiple unclean spirits in somebody. But it could also be that this unclean spirit is trying to speak for the congregation in verse 24, leave us alone. Like Jesus comes in, he steps up to the podium, he starts teaching, and they're like, leave us alone because we're perfectly happy with how we do synagogue. And we don't want anybody coming in thinking they can change it. Which makes me wonder, and Mark doesn't give us this, what passage was Jesus reading to get that reaction? So that's kind of, for me at least, that's interesting. It says, what do we have to do with you? what a damning thing to say about your synagogue. What do we have to do with Jesus? And so this is one of those things. It's it's the singular most doomed statement that we see, I think, in the New Testament about Jewish traditions is that they absolutely have nothing to do with God. And suddenly they're doing some sort of religious practice that just has nothing there. Now the enemy speaks up, takes the attention off the teaching of the word where people could be blessed by Jesus himself And instead of about the word, when they say, what do we have to do with you? Part of what the unclean spirit does is they put the attention on the person instead of the word. And I think this is one of those things that, again, we've dealt with this. People get so excited, but they put the excitement towards the person instead of towards the Jesus that we're headed towards. And that's dangerous. Satan loves that. He loves when we get our faith and our growth from a person instead of from God himself. So any teacher should be pointing people to Jesus through the Word of God, even Jesus when he gets up to talk. And then he says, Jesus is in Nazareth. Well, this is given, if you look up at verse 1, we, it's true, but it's twisted too. Because when he speaks up in the middle of a Bible teaching and says it, obviously we know that being from Nazareth is not a plus in this world. It's a point of mockery. So even though the statement's true, I think demonically it's twisted because that's not his real title. It's his title in the flesh. Oh, he's just Jesus from Nazareth. And you throw the word just in front of it. But we know he's not Jesus from Nazareth. He's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he changes the title of of what Mark gave him in verse 1. He says, did you come to destroy us? Again, this is a mistake. He's placing an, uh, an intention on Jesus that has no cause. He's assuming that Jesus is there to destroy but we know that Jesus is there to save. He's actually there to do quite the opposite. From a demonic perspective, are you here to destroy us demonic presences? And the answer even to that is no, he's just there to save the humans from you. The destruction's going to happen later. So this idea of flipping this attitude, so if this demon is trying to speak for the congregation right now, he's hearing Jesus' teaching and then he's framing Jesus as somebody that's trying to ruin people. But Jesus didn't come to ruin people, he came to save them. He hates the sin and the unclean presence, but he loves the human being. And this is where Christians say things like, we, we, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. And that, that we open that door. So when Jesus comes to heal, renew, and give life, the accusation, did you come to destroy us, is the opposite of what Jesus is doing in that room at that time. So this is, again, we look at this and how the, the, the unclean demonic world tends to twist and turn things. I think sometimes with the unclean spirit, they project onto God attitudes and dispositions that actually belong to them. In psychology, it's called projection. So you're looking at people and all you see is negative. And you've got this this screen in front of your eyes where that's all you can see because that's all that's in your own heart. Surely everybody's like me. And so for this unclean spirit, we know about the demonic world that they come to seek, kill, and destroy. That is what they do. So when Jesus shows up, they assume that's what Jesus is there to do too, but they're projecting that onto him. And then he says, the Holy One of God. That's an interesting phrase. He proclaims this in part before Jesus is ready for that to happen. He wants to just go in and teach in a synagogue and get these four disciples up and running through the Word of God. So when the demon does that, he announces it around, and and we see a few things about the demonic world. The demons know who Jesus is. Think of this when it comes to evangelism. They believe Jesus and what he says. They name him as holy. They call him good things. And they understand exactly what he's saying. So when you are talking to people that aren't believers, they're not following Christ, I think we get way too excited when people understand who Jesus is and what he did and even call him the savior of the world. You can do all of those things and still be an unclean spirit. It's not if you believe Jesus is the son of God. It's if you follow him as the Lord of your life. And they're very different things. The only thing separating a demon from a a believer is that idea of following Jesus as our king. Demons don't do that. But we all, you know, in the spiritual world, they see things we don't in a spiritual world. The Bible assumes that spiritual world is real and that it's true. And here's my other condition, and I'm putting the condition last. There's a ton of Christians that get way too whacked out about this stuff. Honestly, is there a spiritual world? Yes. I know it every time I pray in my head without using my mouth. Like I recognize there's a spirit inside of me. I know you probably and likely have all of those things too. I think therefore I am. There is a spiritual presence to who I am. But this idea that we get excited about demonic possession and we build it up into something is fostered by the world through movies, through music, through different tools to just elevate this idea of a dark world that's out there. But Jesus says he that's in us is stronger than he that's in the world. It's not something Christians should get all weirded out about. And and I think Jesus' response in verse 25 points to that. Here's this unclean spirit that's damned, and the only difference is that he's trying to train his four believers who are with him about cleansing, washing, and following. It's just things they don't do. So it's interesting that Mark puts this situation right up front immediately after he started to get followers. And what's Jesus trying to show him? And I think we're seeing Mark try to write that Jesus has authority in each of these situations. We believe in this sense, and, and and in that we practice belief. Mark 16, 16, if you go to the end of the book, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. So there is this idea that God is sifting, and he's looking for those that are good and those that are bad. The fisherman's net picks up all the fish, and the fishermen take the good fish and throw it into the powerful market, and they throw the bad fish back into the lake. And there's this process that happens. So the spirit knows that the teaching of the word is going to change the hearts of the people in the room. The unclean spirit interrupts that and stops it. And here's what Jesus does. Verse 25, Jesus rebukes him saying, be quiet and come out of him. (laughs) And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. This is striking to readers in the first century because they had elaborate, elaborate ritual around exorcism and Jesus skips the whole thing and just well first of all be quiet as an emphatic um, I love that part I just love that Jesus basically says shut up right you're going to interrupt the teaching of the word shut up what are you doing who do you think you are to interrupt this like this is God's holy word we're reading it this is a sacred time synagogue they would talk about it afterwards so you'd have that and this isn't just and I don't mean to pick on because we've had people that do that. This isn't just being new to the congregation. This was an intentional interruption to stop what was being said. And Jesus's response is shut up. And that's his ritual. Like that's what he does. It's simple. It's easy. There's nothing weird and wacky. There's no salts. There's no holy water. There's no magic robes, magic crosses, none of that stuff. Just shut up. Get out of here. When godly people recognize an unclean spirit, we can, with power, ask them to not interrupt the teaching of God's word. Oh, that's so legalistic. Uh-huh, that's what demons say. This is the teaching of God's word. We're going to do it, and it's, just kinda, it's not just serious business. It's sacred business, and it brings joy to our heart. It feeds us, and it renews us. So no spirit gets to interrupt that or pollute the air with the twisted words that come out of this thing's mouth. And that's the hard part. The occult tells people to seek out spirits and talk to them. The Bible says we don't do that. We don't seek them out. We don't try to talk to grandma because it's not grandma that's talking anymore. But she knew things that only my grandma would know. Uh Uh-huh, there's a spiritual world and there's other beings in that room besides just you and your grandma. Of course they're doing that. They're trying to distract you. They're trying to make you think that there's something mystical out there that will fill some void for you. Jesus just says, shut up. Be quiet, and come out of him. Again, saving the person, getting rid of the spirit. Um, I I have to make this comparison because I think it's beautiful the way that Tolkien writes this. For Gandalf, he's dealing with Grim or Wormtongue, and Grim or Wormtongue interrupts him and ah, blah 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 and starts just saying the vile stuff that comes out of his mouth. Gandalf recognizes who it is, and and when he speaks, listen to what he says. Be silent keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. I didn't pass through fire and death to be bandied crooked words with a witless worm. It's great writing. It's coming straight from this passage from Jesus. Shut up. I don't have to listen to you. I'm done hearing that at this point. I just, the need to be holy and not banter with worms is a distinct right of believers and we should be perfectly okay with that. We don't do business with unclean spirits. We don't try to convince them or turn them We just get them to be quiet. Here's application number one, just to throw in some application. I'm not obligated. I read a lot, but I am not obligated to read, understand, or be exposed to sick thinking and sick intellectualism. I'm not. So, well, you have to understand what they think before you can critique it. No, if it defies the word of God, I don't need to understand it. I can just walk away. Be quiet, you witless worm. And then application number two, I'm not engaged or I'm not, I'm not obligated to engage with people that are clearly filled with an unkilling spirit. Well, how are you going to share the gospel with them? As soon as that spirit's gone and there's a, a soul that wants to be healed, I, we're ready to talk. But first, that spirit's got to go. That resistance to God's will has to disappear. So I can pray for that person, or as Jesus says, come out of him, I can actually command that thing to be gone. That takes a lot of guts because you gotta, if you're going to speak for the words of God and tell the Spirit to get out, you better have your heart in order. You better be washed and cleansed. You better be in the Word. Pharisees try to do exorcisms in the first century, and they're, they're largely fruitless activities. And I think Satan just loves it. Why don't you get more elaborate? Why don't, you, why don't you pour more water on it and see what happens? Why don't you shout louder to your gods? This is the mockery of Elijah that we're going to get to tonight. Right, And there's this idea of, of, I think the enemy loves it when empty souls try to conduct holy ceremonies. And you have these, these exorcisms. I think Hollywood loves to take these ceremonies and make them as elaborate as possible and put them on screen because it makes believers look ridiculous. Yet it's not truth to how, what we see in the Bible. This exorcism is all of a guy trying to teach the word and somebody speaks up and he just says, shut up, get out of him. That's it. So I love this. Gusick notes a Josephus passage that outlines a Jewish exorcism. And I think it's worth our time to look at this. I'm going to read what a Jewish exorcism sounds like. As the readers of Mark in the first century would have known, this is what they do when there's a demon. So compare this to Jesus. So he puts, un, he puts to the nose of the possessed man a ring, which had under it the seal of one of the roots prescribed by Solomon. And then the man would smell it, and it would draw the demon through his nostrils. And when the man fell down, adjured the demon to never come back into him, speaking Solomon's name and reciting the incantations which he had composed. Then wishing to convince the bystanders to prove to them that he had this power, Eleazar placed a cup or food basin of water a little way off and commanded the demon to go out of the man and, and then overturn the barrel of water to make known to all spectators that the demon had left the man. Jesus just says, be quiet, come out of him. That's it. It's very simple. The people with the power of God don't have to be showy. They don't have to show it off. They don't have to pray big elaborate prayers. There's no need for any of that. If the power of God's with you, it happens like that. And again, I don't think it's an accident that we're doing Elijah tonight. Like he's sitting there on his altar, mocking the eight, what, 850 priests of Baal? And he's like, why don't you yell louder? Why don't you do more stuff? Go ahead, like do whatever you gotta do. And he's just chilling all day from morning breakfast to evening supper. He's sitting there just hanging out, watching the futile attempts of humans to try to convince themselves that they have some sort of spiritual power that they just don't have. And then Elijah does a one sentence prayer and the altar just explodes in fire. Because it's not Elijah doing it. And this is the thing. Peter does a healing and they start to worship Peter. And he's like, I'm just a guy. I'm just like you. This is the power of God you're seeing. And when godly people do these things, all the attention doesn't go to the large bookish knowledge of elaborate rituals. And did you catch that there was an incantation in that? It doesn't, the attention doesn't go on the person doing the activity. The attention in a real miracle of God goes to the God that does the miracle. It doesn't go to the human being. So this our exorcism, I think Mark's trying to show Jesus power, his authority over the spiritual world, how empty the human rituals are of that day. And don't forget, he's training these four disciples. This is what this looks like. So he's showing them how to fight their battles. And I just like that. We, I like the song too, but... Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We do battle in a way that the world simply doesn't understand. And that we try to not only clean our own spirits through the washing of the word, through the Holy Spirit, and we try to get right with God in that sense. We don't do it for our salvation. We do it because we love the Lord. And Jesus just says, be quiet, come out. I think for those of us struggling with sin, that's the, we need Jesus to say that about sin in our life. And a lot of times Christians try to fight their own sin, but we don't do that battle that way. We do it with God's power. Lord, help me beat my sin. Take it away. So the longer Old Testament narrative is this battle with evil throughout the Old Testament. Moses, Joshua, David, they all foreshadow Jesus in that they push back the, the enemy outside the Holy Land, and they create a space that's dedicated unto God, until in Kings they screw it all up. Genesis 6:4. there were giants on the earth in those days, and after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bare children unto them, and the same became mighty men which were of old and men of renown. The Old Testament is largely the narrative of these abominations being pushed off the earth that they would be no more. That wasn't God's plan. And they all do battle with the Nephilim and they all advance the kingdom of God in doing that battle. So when we see Jesus do this, he's modeling for us the kind of battle that the church has had for 2,000 years. We wipe the rebellion against God off the face of the earth by changing people's hearts one at a time. And Jesus does this too. He starts with the synagogue at home and then he hands the mission off to the church territory. Be quiet, get out of him. And the spirit leaves. And, I, and, I, and again, I think it's an amazing miracle of God that we don't walk around and see demon-possessed people down on the street corner all the time. Yet that's coming back in a post-Christian society. So it is one of the things that Christians do push back the darkness. And I think that's wonderful. And then in verse 27, then they were all amazed. They're amazed because of everything I just said. How starkingly different Jesus was, the authority that he had, So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. Like instant popularity for Jesus. And we're going to see a pattern with Jesus. He gets the crowds, and then he leaves the crowds. This is the opposite of a marketing campaign. Mark points out that Jesus was known almost immediately and instantly. This is still chapter 1 that everyone knew who Jesus was, that God moves in public and his fame spread is what he says. The idea there is that is exactly how we would do it. Literally everyone knows who Jesus is. You've either heard of him or you've heard about him or you've seen him do his thing and it spreads. It's spreading in this region of the world again is at a crossroads of the ancient world. This word of Jesus would have spread all over to Asia, Africa, Europe. Anyone traveling through here would have seen or heard of this guy. It's like when you're traveling on a road trip and you see the sign to stop at Walmart and you see it again and again and again. Travelers would be coming into Capernaum going, if you do anything, you got to go hear this Jesus guy teach and watch him do his thing. So that word getting out or the fame spreading would have been something that would have been like what travelers told each other along the road. The word amazed there, thambio in in the Greek, is to be astonished or terrified. So it is scary when God's power is fully revealed. I think... Because we have so little power. And the force of God's power sends the people to ask Moses to be their mediator because they couldn't handle the force of it. It's like being too close to a fire. You can feel your facial hair starting to singe up, and you get yourself away and you get yourself back. So, this amazed idea is they got a little too close to the power of God with this one. They could feel it, they were terrified or amazed, astonished jaw-dropping power when he says be quiet get out of him there is a force to that and it happens instantly and everyone in the room can just recognize the authority again what they're amazed by is the authority but look at how they frame it and this is part of just understanding what is this not who is this what is this like it was something more than a person there what new doctrine is this like he's teaching out of the word and suddenly they're all falling asleep in synagogue and then that happens and they're like Okay, what is going on here? And how does he do that and our rabbis and Pharisees have to do all this other ornate stuff? And then for what authority he commands the unclean spirits. It was the power of the authority that happens. Some of them later on, and in, 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 in I should have looked this one up, they accused Jesus of being one of the evil spirits. And Jesus is like, what house divided it against itself as stand? If I'm an evil spirit person, how could, why would I cast out my own people? That doesn't make any sense. But they had to try to make an understanding of this. Why is he so different from the Pharisees, yet so powerful at the same time? And the answer should be obvious, is stop following the Pharisees. They're making up their own stuff. Verse 28, and immediately his fame spread throughout all the region. Mark's point here is that this was so stunning and mind-blowing, the word went out almost instantly. And people didn't know how to process it. Um, However, Jesus doesn't go looking for crowds. His next stop is to go to a private residence. And remember, each of these stories is put in place for a reason. First, we saw his power over demonic possession. Instant, quick, and simple. This next story is instant, quick, and simple power over sickness and death. Just immediate. So now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, again, the writer just ties these together. As soon as they'd come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Um, Instead of expanding his audience, he reduces it, And Jesus focuses on fellowship. Why didn't the crowds follow him over to their house? Part of it is because there were tons of rules around Sabbath that you couldn't travel this many steps or you couldn't do this kind of stuff. So the crowds have to wait until evening for Sabbath to be over for the evening meal. And we're going to see that when that happens, they all just gang tackle Jesus' house here or the place he's staying. Um, Peter's house is believed to be, and I think this is great, it's about three houses away from the Capernaum Synagogue. They've dug all this up. And so right now the synagogue in Capernaum was built on top of in, in the early Christian world. And the stones of the original synagogue are still underneath or foundational to that. But they believe Peter lived about three houses away or three doors down. And I don't know if that's where the band name comes from or not. Um, but he's, he's there. Verse 30, But Simon's wife, wife's mother lay sick with fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. What do you mean? There's no weird concoctions? Like, think of what doctors do today to get us healthy. This is even simpler than that. And they told, they told him about her. You know, it's interesting that he does this thing where he, he teaches the word, gets this guy cleaned out of this evil spirit, and then they immediately say, oh, Peter's mom, she's really sick. Because there's something in the power of Jesus that they tell him about her because they know he can do something. I don't tell people that are helpless about things, but she's deathly ill. Some people believe that what she has here is called the burning fever, which was in the first century just a killer. And it was something that people got and that they were terrified by it. Um, That was their version of COVID, I think. Um, Immediately, Mark loves this word. He intones the miraculous when he uses it this time immediately the fever left her. Weird thing about when you get done with a cold and you've had a fever, do you ever remember the point where the fever leaves? Like it's usually a slow gradual thing. Stuff will be like, or your fever breaks and you start sweating to cool yourself down. But it's still kind of a gradual thing to come out of a cold or a fever. But in this case, it's immediately the fever left her and she served them, which is Interesting. So in the same way that the Talmud has these elaborate rituals for exorcism, it also has elaborate rituals for fevers. And this is kind of cool because it's one of the only things, demonic possession and fevers, that have incantations attached to them in the Talmud. So it's, I think, one of those things where God said he didn't want them doing sorcery and incantations. He didn't want them. It's not about stock words that you say or magic prayers or something like that. They would do it as an image of Exodus, so they would take an iron knife, and then they would bring in a thorn bush, and then they would read three passages from Exodus, and then they would say an incantation, which I'm not going to repeat. And Jesus brushes aside all of these silly traditions. He goes in and he takes her hand, and he lifts her up. And it's so simple and so basic, but it's virtually the same in the face of ritual that he did with the demonic possession thing. And I think a first century reader would recognize these two events as being very closely tied. Jesus took the most elaborate rituals that the Pharisees had and he did these two things that, with such simplicity and power that it defied or, or really sets him up against a, a new way of doing things. What doctrine is this? right? How is this different from what the Pharisees teach? So you get this common thread between the demon in verse 25 and in verse 31 of bypassing the traditions. He takes her hand. This is different than what the demon possessed thing. He didn't touch him. The other thing is you touch a sick person, and this is true today, people get worried about getting sick. And it actually can make you unclean to do this sort of thing. And we'll get to that with leprosy here in a second. Uh, There's no recorded words um, Luke says that when this happened, he rebuked the fever, but Mark leaves that out. I think because Mark's emphasizing how simple this all was. So she served them and I, I there's such character in those words. It's just four words, but do you know people like this? Like if they're not dead, they're serving people. And it's just like, this was my grandma, right? You'd walk in her house. She'd immediately start serving people that walked into her house. It was just this instant kind of thing. And the heart of service is so deep in Peter's mom, it's all they want to do, even after they just got over a fever. They're up and they're making things so people can be comfortable. It's Not being able to host is probably worse for Peter's mom than dying of the fever. If you know people like this, right? That idea of not being able, people are over at your house and you can't do anything about it, had to just be torture for her. And Jesus comes in and gives her, I think it's kind of a mercy. And we see that because it says, and she served them. She just gets up and starts helping out. The other thing is when God heals people, this is how we should all respond when God heals us. When God takes care of something in our life, our response should be to serve him and the body of people that gather together in his name. How do we do that? Jesus saves, we serve him with joy. And there's this instant and logical response. So this story, I think, is common with the demon possession and that there's no ceremony here. And then at evening, verse 32, at evening when the sun had set, and that's important because now Sabbath is over, they brought to him all who were sick and all those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Again, Jesus didn't act in secret ever. Like Mark's saying this in chapter 1. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Well, this is interesting because the first one that he dealt with actually got that out of the mouth, and then Jesus from here on is like, we're going to stop that. But now he can't go in and out of cities, right? Now he's known. And when you have an entire city showing up at your door, this gets to be kind of a processing issue. Like, how do you get that many people there? And I think the point here is that, and again, verse 34, he healed the many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. It's those two elements that he does over and over and over again. So it wasn't just a one-off. Anybody with demons. Like, you could put the word out in White Bear Lake Elmo. I don't know how many people would actually show up. Free demon exorcism, <laughs> right? And I just, I, I, again, I, I appreciate that we don't live in that world anymore. I appreciate the influence of God's spirit across the land. And I think that's just a wonderful thing. So folks, we're itching to see Jesus. As soon as the sun set, the whole city shows up and Jesus goes out and gets to work. And this is the Jesus we see in the book of Mark. He's a servant and he's working all night. He's, he's, he's going until everyone gets taken care of. Many people are served, many who are sick. And in doing this, Jesus is doing the same thing spiritually that Joshua did physically. Joshua sent the Canaanites moving along. Jesus sends the demons moving along. And he starts to carve out a little territory on the planet where there aren't demons inside of people. And that little bit of territory starts to grow everywhere Jesus goes. He goes city to city and starts casting out demons everywhere he goes. How many demons did they have? Like, that's one of those questions. Like, how crazy was this world? I did a mission trip to Haiti back when I was a younger person in college. Every single town that we visited... They were well aware of people that had demons. The entire country. They just knew it. That's where they're at. That's where they're hanging out at. The demons hung out in the graveyards, just like we see in the Bible. And you have this entire country that is just overwhelmed by this stuff. And part of that is their dedication to voodoo. They're committed as a nation to messing around with the occult, and there's damaging destructive effects of messing around with that stuff. It's not a light thing. So in America, we've seen a rise in the purchase of Ouija boards. We've seen a rise in the number of teen books and kid books about the occult, about witches, witchcraft, vampires, werewolves, you name it. And they've made it all friendly and nice until it's not. And they've even embraced this idea of how great it is to have demons inside of you. Right? This is a dangerous thing and it's destructive. So when we see those things happening as believers, we've got to get ready to say, be quiet and get out of her. Get out of him. And we need to be ready to do that. And I pray that doesn't happen ever in my life. But am I ready to do it? Am I ready to do what Jesus showed his disciples to do here? The city was gathered. I can't emphasize enough how this public thing becomes relevant when you're dealing with critics of the Gospels. Well, this was just a small group of people that came up with a story. Uh Uh-uh. This was an entire city of people that saw healing and demon possession being taken care of. It was, it, and, and I think the Gospels make that point because they wanted people to know like how powerful Jesus was and how everybody saw it. It gives a summative statement in verse 34 that Jesus had power over all of these things and then he goes preaching. Verse 35, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. Jesus is still modeling a set of actions that his disciples will later take on. So he's up all day after supper Helping hundreds of people with demon possession and healing, and then he still gets up early in the morning to go pray with his God. I like, just this is sweet. The prayer is highlighted. We don't get to know what Jesus prayed, but we get to know that he prayed and that he was a man of prayer, not out in front of everybody, but off on his own, finding a solitary place to get that time with God. And I gotta say, as believers, the more we can mimic this and start our day in the presence of God the healthier our life gets. And it's just, it's the way God wired our brains. If we want to do warfare against the evils of the world, prayer is the primary starting point to refresh and renew. Ah, I can't get up that early. Try it. See what happens. He does the most powerful thing in human form that he can do. The incarnate God prays. This is a conundrum if you think, well, isn't he just talking to himself? But in part, he's grabbed these four disciples because he's showing them how to live. And prayer is the way in which, as an incarnate human, he's able to connect with himself again and relate to himself and know the will of God the Father as he's doing these things. So the solitary place, he's going to later pray with his disciples. He's going to pray publicly. He's going to, there's all sorts of prayer that we see in the New Testament. But the solitary prayer is the sweet time that the disciples notice. And it's one of the things Peter preached about when he talked about Jesus. Jesus would pray by himself early in the morning. Note that for Jesus, prayer time wasn't on the Sabbath. This is the day after the Sabbath. And for Jews, that was kind of new too. Because you did all your God stuff on the Sabbath, and the rest of the week you did whatever you wanted to do. Jews still do this today. It even appears to Christians to be a little hypocritical. What do you mean you're doing that during the week? Don't, isn't there an ethical code? Well, yeah, there's an ethical code. But for Jesus to pray on Sunday morning is a really interesting new thing that he's showing the disciples in the first century. And he does it every day. And we get that implication. This is just a regular thing for Jesus. Verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Like, that's how solitary he was. And when they found him, they said to him, everybody's looking for you. They're thinking like the world. Like, we're, this is a movement now. Let's build this. But he said to them, and the word but's there because he's contradicting this idea that he needs to listen to everybody. But he said to them, let's go into the next towns that I might preach there also, because for this purpose I've come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. And the implication is also that he's healing people there too. So Jesus, instead of staying to enjoy the fame in Capernaum, starts going town to town to town to town to to preach in their synagogues, heal people and cast out demons. He's, He's making territory. He's reclaiming land. And this is the part of the gospel of Jesus then that we see in verse one. Jesus is this character and this is the stuff he did. He cast out demons, he healed people and he prayed and and he taught his disciples and he trained them and he preached. The emphasis on here is in the preaching. He preached there and because for that purpose he's come. The, The goal of Jesus is to let people know that there's a new covenant. And so he preaches the good news everywhere he goes. Again, this is the gospel of Mark, and he's showing us what the gospel looks like. Even a gospel that's focused on deeds, as Mark emphasizes, is understanding that the preaching was still at the focus of the ministry. You have to hear God's words for God's words to have an effect on you, period. So Mark outlines the pattern of this earthly ministry preaching, casting out, healing, moving on to the next town. So then you get to this leper scene. And again, he's showing us power and authority. Lepers are distinct. Verse 40. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you're willing, make me clean. So as Jesus is doing all this stuff and he's gaining all this public recognition, there in every one of these towns was probably a little leper colony. People that had gotten leprosy. It was prevalent in the first century. There's still about uh where's my number on this? World Health Organization in 2020 said that. We still have about 16 million people worldwide with leprosy. We get about 127,000 cases new every year. So leprosy is still on the planet. But again, praise the Lord, we live in a country it's virtually extinct in America because it's been pushed back. And leprosy is one of the things God came to deal with. So we see this kind of happening. Jesus is still modeling an action here as he does it. He's doing warfare against the evils of this world. Evils like demons, evils like sickness, evils like leprosy, which in the Old Testament was this image of a curse or even associated with sin itself. Um, So when they rebelled against Moses, was it Miriam got leprosy and then got leprosy taken away. Like leprosy doesn't work like that. It's a viral infection. So for her to just get it and then have it come taken away is a miracle. Right? It doesn't act like that. But the idea is the Old Testament would associate leprosy with sin itself. So even as Jesus takes care of all these horrible things on the earth, he also takes care of this thing that is sin itself. The manifestation of sin because it corrupts people. It's a slow death. It takes about 15 years to die of leprosy. And the way you die of leprosy is that your neural endings stop working. So you can't feel your fingers and your feet and your toes. <clears throat> Blood flow doesn't go to them, and eventually they just fall off. So you watch yourself over 15 years going from little skin spots to having your digits fall off, and eventually your nose falls off, and your eyes fall out. And you die blind, and you can't smell the roast beef anymore. So you just, it's a horrible way to die. It takes away all the joys of life. So in the first century, they were obeying the law of Leviticus 13 and 14 to get the contagion outside the town. They would quarantine people with leprosy. But the simple quarantine of Leviticus has turned into something like a, that's much, much worse by the first century because now they ostracize these people. They're forced to yell, unclean, unclean, whenever they approach somebody. And if they don't do it, they could be stoned for doing that. So they have a social curse that goes along with the physical curse. And so in each of these towns Jesus is going into, the leprosies are probably at the point where they're thinking, well, he's here for all these other people, but he's not here for us. He can't fix leprosy. It's an unfixable thing, a lot like sin. Considered incurable, there's still a biblical account for what to do when you're cured of leprosy, which has never happened since it was given to the law of Moses. So here comes Jesus walking along with the only... Curing of leprosy in the history of the world being God's direct inter- intercession. The Demons had been cast out by other people. People have gotten healed by, you know, God works in those ways. But when it comes to leprosy, nobody has cured leprosy. And so at this point, when this guy says, make me clean, he actually is saying the right thing. If leprosy is an image of sin, he doesn't need to be made well, he needs to be made clean. And what he asks for is cleansing. It's interesting that the spirit in the demon possession story was called an unclean spirit. And here we have an unclean physical ailment. And it's about cleansing, not healing. That's a statement of faith. This leper believes Jesus can actually do it. Why would he believe that? Because of the power and authority that he's shown in every other aspect of life. So he asks Jesus to do it. It's a great act of faith. Then Jesus moved with compassion, verse 41, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I'm willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Mark spends time on this story, and I think the core of it is he touched him. You never touch a leper. If you touch a leper or a dead person, you're ceremonially unclean according to the law of Moses. You cannot be touched. So you're like, is Jesus breaking the law of Moses? And in touching the leper, does that make Jesus unclean? But with the word of God coming out of his mouth, he he chooses to touch the leper here. And here's the thing. When Jesus touches somebody's life, they are clean. So in that sense, instead of Jesus getting corrupted, the power of God is so much stronger, it goes the other direction. The leper becomes clean. And this is what happens when we touch, when we come in contact with Jesus. He cleans us. In part because he makes us feel guilty as heck about all the stuff in our life that shouldn't be there. And so over time, we get rid of some of those things. And we're happier when we do. And in part because Jesus actually cleanses us. He changes our heart to not want those things anymore. So Mark points out, immediately the leprosy left him. And I think that immediately there is because Jesus is actually the healer in that situation. And he says, I'm willing, be cleansed. So Jesus is talking to one man, but he's talking to everybody that sees this. And through the word, he's talking to us too. If Jesus touches our life, we can be cleansed. That's a hope and a promise. That's the good news. That's the gospel, verse one, that this can actually happen. Verse 42, as soon as he had spoken with a word, it instantly happens. So this is wonderful. And I think this is what the church has done. We have, over time, pushed back leprosy. And for all the doctor, the Christian doctors out there, this is part of their calling push back disease, push back the, 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 hopelessness of demon possession. So when Christians step into society and start pushing back things like depression, anger, hate, chaos, anarchy, we're actually doing some of God's work. And this is a very Lutheran idea, right? That when we come in and influence our society for the better, we're actually doing things that God did. And this is in part where they get those ideas, that we're active and we're committed. And I'm going to say on this point, I hope there's nobody that is in our fellowship that doesn't vote next week. I mean, honestly, that's all our government asks of us. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. All our government asks us to do is vote. And again, again, we can get into politics if we want to, but if the church isn't voting, we're doing exactly what the demon wanted to happen in the synagogue. He wanted the word to stop going out. He wanted the good people of the world to shut up and be quiet, and Satan wins a huge battle when that happens. So in this sense, when he speaks, when he says something... The forces of darkness and evil get pushed back and Mark is showing us that through the the demon possession, through the sickness and here through leprosy and image of sin itself. Even sin has to back up when Jesus is in the room. And I just, I think sometimes in the church we underestimate the power of God because we think too much about the battles the world wants to fight. The world wants us to get into it at work, wants to be upset about the news and the Lord just tells us to draw close to him. Come follow me. And in doing that, like these four disciples, we get to see all the other things be taken care of, too. Sin, therefore, has met its match, and it's not even close. And God's children, Christians, the church, we keep pushing back and claiming territory over all of these things. Oppression, terror, slavery has been reduced worldwide in the last 2,000 years. That's a good thing to get rid of. Sickness itself has massively lost ground over humanity in the last 2,000 years. Because Christians started making hospitals. They started to make universities so thought and reason would predominate superstition and chaos of thought. We developed better mathematics. We've developed better better biology, better sciences. We've reduced overall theft around the world. You couldn't travel in the first century without worrying about somebody robbing you on the roads. Think of the the number of places on the earth where that's gone away you can go from point A to point B and assume you're not going to be robbed. That's good. And that's part of the work of God's people. Overall, you know, and I'll, you know, why not? I'll just put my foot in it. Overall, the number of abortions are going down in America. That's good. That's amazing. And when those things are taken, Christians should celebrate as we're pushing back the evil in this world. We back up God's love for people when we show God's love for people. Overall corruption in world governments, the more Christian the nation is, the less corruption you see in the government. The less Christian the nation is, the more you see just rampant corruption, which steals from people and causes famine and hunger and poverty. So when you see a nation or nations around the world that do things more according to God's law, it benefits the people of that country. And here with Jesus pushing back leprosy, he's showing us there's nothing that can't be done with the power of God. And leprosy was this looming evil in the first century. And every town you went into, you saw that group of zombies outside the town in a leper colony. And by the time we look at this area today, there were barely any leper colonies left in Israel and in America and in other nations around the world. In part because we've now figured out how to treat this because science started to investigate how to fight diseases. But in the first century, they didn't understand what a germ was. So... I just think this is great. And this is the first leper getting healed of hundreds of thousands that we've seen healed since this time. And Jesus starts that ministry in Mark chapter one. So just a side note. I know that's fairly civic, but verse 43. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once. This is the leper that Jesus is talking to. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Remember there's a law, Leviticus chapter 14, that if you get healed of this unhealable thing, this is what you need to do. So this is the first time in history that someone has actually done this. Now imagine being the priest... And the leper comes walking in. He's still got leper clothes on, right? He's still got that look, and you know, uh, and 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 he walks in, and it looks like a normal person, but they're wearing leper clothes, and they just say, "I've been cleaned of leprosy." And the first thing the priest's probably going to do is say, "Get out of here," right? But look, no leprosy, and it's a visible thing that you can see. So I think the priest would have to go back in and read it. Like if you if like somebody came in saying, "I need the cleansing ritual of being healed of leprosy," like nobody knows, like. If you're going through little rabbi school, they're like, we can skip chapter 14 of Leviticus because this never happens. So you don't really need to learn this ritual. But here these priests would be running back into the back room, pulling out Leviticus, finding that chapter in verse 14, going, what the heck do we do? But what this should say to them is God just showed up. And those priests should be knowing, okay, if leprosy just got healed, the the cleansing ritual from leprosy involves no incantations. In the Old Testament... It involves cedar wood, scarlet, red, and hyssop and clean water and blood. It's an image of, of, of the cross, if anything. Sin's been killed, and you go through all these elements of, of these things. Um, they'd never done this before, and those priests that are in that room probably are having a real moment when this guy walks in. So all of them would be thinking, who healed you and where are they? But Jesus commanded him not to say anything. He doesn't listen, verse 45. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. So part of why Jesus didn't want to find popularity is he wanted to be able to go in and out of synagogues. But he couldn't do this because this person disobeyed and and so Jesus adjusted and did it differently. Perhaps the leper was just enthusiastic and wanted to share it with the world. And I think this is, I want to be really careful with this. Sometimes the over-enthusiasm of the healed actually hurts the ministry of Jesus. Because you come across as nuts. And so I think this is one of those things, in disregarding Jesus, the man hurts the ministry instead of helping the ministry. But I wonder if in his heart he wanted to help the ministry. Everybody should know about Jesus. I just got healed of leprosy. I'm guessing he goes back to the leper colony and starts telling all of them about this too. You guys just have to have faith in the Lord. And the Lord's name is Jesus and he's right over here. And so the unthoughtful enthusiasm because this person felt justified to do it, that's self-justifying, actually was something that damages Jesus' ability to get in and out of large groups of people because those large groups of people have already made up their mind about Jesus before they meet him. And so it's just an interesting image of this person. You know, you feel for him a little bit because you're thinking your life is over. You're just going to rot away and die. And then this guy comes and instantly heals you. I would think everything in you, selfishly, would want to tell everybody about it and get to know it. He may have ran back home to his family and told them about it, but he definitely... um, wakes up the priests that are there and, and changes things. So Jesus is now out in the wilderness. When we get to chapter 2, he's got the crowds coming out to him instead of him going to the, the people. And so Mark just keeps rolling with all this power of Jesus and authority that Jesus shows. And along the way, we get to see how his disciples learn these things about what's going on. Sometimes when we see healing and we see growth, the praise should go to God, not the person who made it happen. And, and God wants that glory and that praise and that sweet isolation of prayer in what Jesus commanded this guy to do. He should have just gone home and praised the Lord. And he should have found his prayer life immediately. But instead of his prayer life, he wants to go out and tell everybody. But the maturity wasn't there yet. And so it actually caused more problems than it solved. That said, Jesus will later tell his disciples to go out and tell the world. But there's a nuance to that because sometimes he tells people not to go out and tell everybody. And so what that says to me is I actually have to follow Jesus. There's no rule here. I speak when he tells me to speak and I don't speak when I am told not to speak. And following Jesus helps the ministry of Jesus more than my own intention and will. That's a huge lesson, you guys. Like that's 30 years of Christian life coming down to a sentence. It just never works when I do it with my plan. It always works when I do it with God's plan. Even when it looks ridiculous to the world. It just keeps working. And my heart just keeps finding more and more joy at every one of the steps. How does that happen? How do you say to the leper, be cleansed? And you see cleansing in your own life and you keep being blessed as you go through life at every step. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that... Mark and Peter sat down and and got these stories worked out. We thank you for Mark and his service and his servant's heart to record the teachings of Peter and record the story from Peter's perspective. Lord, we just thank you so much that we get this lens. Lord, I'm so encouraged that you were public. Lord, we don't have to argue about something that happened in secret places or in the quiet. It happened in a place where everyone could see it. And Lord, the readers of Mark could have challenged it and contested it. We have just no record of that that they saw it. They saw what Jesus did and how he did it. We know that you, Lord, um, revealed yourself to this world. So here we are 2,000 years later. Lord, help us to serve you. Um, When we're sick, we give it to you. Um, Lord, when we are fighting the enemy and unclean spirits, Lord, we give that to you. Lord, even with the sin in our lives, we give that to you. Lord, help us to just be obedient followers, to get up and serve instead of go out and disobey. Help us to just bring that um, Understanding to fullness in our lives. Lord, that it's so much more important that we serve you than even our own attitudes and dispositions or what anybody else is telling us to do. Lord, help us to be followers. Help, help us to, Lord, when you call, we say, um, I'm here, Lord. What, what can I do? And help us to do it with sincerity and humility and honesty. In Jesus' name, amen.